0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the algorithms of oppression. Not that they're made to be that way on purpose, but that it's a natural outcome of a profit-based system that incentivizes people to post the most click-baity content, while the system itself learns the viewer's weaknesses to ruthlessly feed them whatever will keep them engaged. Clips today come from The Brian Lehrer Show, Delete Your Account, Point of Inquiry, Ideas from the CBC, and On the
1: Media. Now, a lot of people know, with respect to YouTube, that when we select a YouTube video, it often plays that video and then goes on to a next one that YouTube's algorithm chooses, not you. It happened to me just this morning with a very harmless example before I read your article that that I chose a video by the jazz piano player Helen Sung, and after that it started playing one by the jazz piano player Joey Alexander, who I hadn't asked for. And I didn't realize I was listening to a different artist until I happened to glance at the screen. Totally harmless. But can you tell us about the experiment that you and some of your BuzzFeed colleagues did with that function by searching terms like impeach the mother?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what uh, what we did a uh, couple of months ago, right around the time that the uh, uh, this new Congress uh, was um uh, coming into office is we tried to reverse engineer the YouTube algorithm to some degree and understand why it recommends the videos it does. We took, uh, rather anodyne search terms that were, uh, popular in Google, you know, things like that phrase, impeach the mother, but also things like, uh, um, you know, uh, Congress inauguration, things like that, uh, and tried to, um, automate what would happen. So we, you know, we, we, watched as the as YouTube recommended each video and tried to understand why it would do that. And what we what we essentially found was that the outcomes were different re, almost regardless of, of of what you were searching. So you could search impeach the mother 10 times, uh, follow that uh video down down its recommended rabbit hole and you'd get something different. Uh and and really what we what we saw was that YouTube's algorithm is not only um sort of uh subject to its own whims but 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 nobody could really understand why it's doing what it's doing it's optimizing for different uh metrics including watch time uh and and we can't really make sense of it and i and i'm not really certain that even the engineers that set the parameters there know what's what it's doing it just sort of uh has a mind of its own to some degree
1: so people often complain about social media tracking us only toward political content we already agree with uh you know locking us into our echo chambers is this the opposite complaint that youtube is exposing people to hateful or hyper-partisan content that they disagree with
2: well it's possible it's it's actually a little bit of both i think and and it, what it's doing is it's pushing to extremes Sort of regardless of the ideology, and I think that's what we noticed in this experiment. It wasn't just that you know a uh, um, a search for uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez would would bring up some you know some far right video. Uh, it would also bring up videos about her um, that were you know overly uh, fawning or or sort of exaggerated you know on the side of of supporting her. It, it, it sort of didn't really. Um, it didn't matter what the ideology was, and it, it seems that YouTube's algorithm has no ideology. The only thing that it does is ruthlessly optimize to keep you engaged, to make sure that you will not leave the page. So that means videos that will uh, delight you. It also means videos that will upset you and make you want to watch another video. Uh, it, it's really it's it's prioritizing engagement above all else. And I think that's what we see
1: uh, on both sides of the spectrum. I want to play a clip. There there are people on the internet, as you know, working to de-shroud and explain the cultural interworkings of right-wing extremism. Uh, for example, Natalie Wynn, whose YouTube channel ContraPoints is devoted to explaining how that sort of ideology comes about and spreads online and how to recognize it. So here's a clip from a video that she made after charlottesville called decrypting the alt-right how to recognize a fascist here's 48 seconds of the soundtrack from that
3: strategy six irony jokes satire and memes of course i wasn't actually being racist it was just an edgy meme can't anyone take a joke anymore or will the antifa fascists violently attack you over humor now too Here's a uniquely millennial twist on the racist dog whistle. You shroud your sincere ideas in cartoon characters and memes, and then when called out, you mock your accuser for being a clueless normie who isn't in on the joke. Sometimes irony can be a safe way to explore ideas that you're not quite ready to own yet. Before I realized I was transgender, I used to jump at any opportunity to crossdress ironically. So when you see people joking about being Nazis, they could just be joking, or they could be using irony to partially conceal the truth. It's difficult to tell the difference, and that's the point.
1: And that's the point. Charlie, um, they could be just using irony to conceal, conceal the truth. Uh, Or they could just be joking. It's difficult to tell the difference. And that's the point, says Natalie Wynn about an alt-right strategy uh, for attracting people online to their ideology. Is that familiar to you? It's absolutely familiar. And I think, you know, without going into
2: the details and and, and amplifying the messages in the the shooters, the New Zealand shooters manifesto, you could see that um, that the contents of that manifesto was laden in those types of ironic in jokes with those types of communities, the sort of, you know, leaving all these different traps and, uh, for for journalists and 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 making it very difficult for anyone trying to figure out motivations to parse that is part of the point. Um, and I think what it speaks to, especially with, with regard to the internet, is the communities that these platforms can foster. Whether it's you know Facebook and Facebook groups, whether it's a community around a, a specific YouTuber, or a YouTube video, or a lot of these message boards, places like 4chan, places like Reddit those places foster these senses of community. And, and and you know, when we're thinking about online radicalization, a, th- a really good thing to keep in mind is how, how these communities are formed and how uh, people become uh, emboldened by them. They're not only indoctrinated to an ideology, but they're trying to perform for their group by sort of upping the ante every single time. And I think one thing that we can see from the New Zealand shooter is that All of the digital breadcrumbs that that he left uh, signal that he was performing for this group of people. He was trying to get attention much in the same way as you might, uh, you know, try to get attention by posting something on a message board.
4: I think this raises an interesting question about whether there should be uh, maybe on the part of the state and you bring up ample evidence about european anti uh, hate speech laws to to make this a at least a plausible scenario to imagine what sort of countervailing force should be exercised or could be exercised on corporations as they exist now because you bring up really poignantly, I think the uh, and this is provocative, uh, to a lot of people, uh, the case of Dylan roof, the, uh, killer and, um, who shot up, uh, uh, a church, um, a black church in, uh, uh, Charleston. Was it?
5: uh, Yes. South Carolina, South
4: Carolina. And, uh, that was, uh, you know, as a, partly as a result of his radicalization through the, the, the concept of, black on white crime um which is a a watchword of the you know the far right you know anywhere from proud boys to the actual nazis uh are going to explicitly talk about this and they'll frame it in a clever way where uh, seemingly where it's like oh well what about white on black crime it's almost non-existent and you're like why aren't you considering the vast majority of violence which is not interracial in, you know transracial or whatever uh, but yes. anyway the whole point is that through this very narrow framing he was led to presumably sites that care about this sort of thing uh, because obviously no one else is 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 religiously following the concept of black on white crime you write, he was not led to counter positions to anti-racist websites that could describe the history, uh, of the, 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 what is it, the conservative citizens council, the, this racist group in the South, uh, and its articulated aims, uh, in its statement of principles, uh, that reflect a long history of anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-Muslim fervor, um, and you say, there is no federal, state, or local regulation of the psychological impact of the internet, obviously, yet big data analytics and algorithms derived from it hold so much power in over-determining decisions. Uh, there is no counterposition, nor is there a disclaimer or framework for contextualizing what we get. Had Dylan Roof, uh, you know, uh, seen the way that uh, this works, basically, uh, he would, he could have, one would hope, you're right, uh, that he would have, uh, you know, uh, changed his ways. But do you think that uh, there is regulation that's sort of sensible that could be enacted in the vein of restriction on speech? What do you think should be put forward as an alternative to the way that Google is regulated or, or other search engines are regulated now? Or does the state not have anything to do with it in our context?
5: Well, I think the state has a lot to do with it. And, you know, before we all give up on the state or the public, I will just say, you know, my feeling is that while the state has been implicated in incredible violence um, globally, uh, and this is not just the state in terms of the U.S., but, the, you know, governments all over the world are implicated in all kinds of um, disastrous effects for vulnerable people, Um the state is also, and public institutions in particular, that are funded by taxpayers or funded by the public, to me are not to be given up on. Uh, and so I, I want to make sure I make this distinction because uh, many times, you know, people think of corporations as the state now because they're synonymous. And I think we shouldn't completely cede uh, to that notion. And it's, it's, perfectly legitimate to want democratic institutions in our society that serve the interests of everyone and not just the majority, because if you're, you know, in the case, in my case, I'm, you know, African-American, I'm in the minority. So numerically, so it's not just about, it's a plurality of people who need to be protected uh, by the public interest Organizations. So let me just say that as just a framework for thinking about what I'll say next, which is mm-hmm. there are other places in the world. Certainly, you brought up um, the EU, which has much more um, careful analysis of uh, and policy uh, that's c- coming forth uh, around privacy, surveillance, protection, the right to be forgotten. The ways in which uh, people and ideas get uh, represented and misrepresented. Now, in the case of Germany, which I think people think of generally, uh, think of Germany as having the most—you uh, know—some people might call it stringent or robust, um, robust, <laughs> right? Um, you know, others might say thoughtful um, kinds of approaches to thinking about protecting the public. We have to contextualize why they are where they are in their policy. Um, right. ideas. I think people can guess. Yeah, it's called the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they remember Germany has a much more uh, um, enviable reckoning with the Holocaust in the way that, let's say, the United States does not have that reckoning with colonization and enslavement of Africans. And indigenous people. So we have a diff- two diff- really different historical memories about the role of speech in leading to travesties, human rights uh, abuses, mm-hmm. genocide, holocaust. And in the in in Germany, you know, their conceptions. Germany, France, in particular, think about speech as a precursor to act to action and behavior too. They understand speech in a different context. You know, in the U S we have the first amendment and we talk about freedom of speech and freedom of speech is incredibly important. And you're not going to really ever hear me argue against that, but I will say speech in context is valuable for understanding how it also leads to someone like Dylan Roof and dozens of other mass shooters and people in the US who have been quietly radicalized quite frankly toward racist violence in our society and um and for which we don't have a logic yet uh, that's widely understood about the relationship between online radicalization and and activities like mass shootings that happen in our society that are also motivated by hate uh, and racism. So I, I think we have to, this is where we need the space of a book or this conversation to really spend time understanding these relationships and just falling down on slogans like free speech at all costs or free speech is the most important thing without understanding how disinformation and propaganda in particular played a huge role leading up to the Holocaust. They certainly, um play a huge role in right-wing extremism in the United States. And much of that just gets, uh, you know, people turn the other way. They don't want to take it on. It seems too difficult, I guess. Um, and, and then when you start talking about their kind of like the precious Silicon Valley companies and the roles in which they play in propagating this kind of content, well, you know, now we actually have to start talking about whether...
6: They have to be held to account
5: mm. for
6: fueling and that, disinformation, and and that's an interesting point, especially when you bring up Germany, because I think something I learned about whenever the whole alt right movement was beginning to sort of peak online, I found out that changing um, your Twitter account setting to Germany actually. The, in your settings, not just your location or your profile, it caused some far-right profiles to be withheld from viewership. And it would show a warning that said so-and-so's account withheld. And then it shows you the countries that it was being withheld in. And in, Germ- in the case of Germany, um, one of the reasons is they have a very strict... Um, hate crime law, and in 2017, October 2017, they passed a new law specifically targeting hate speech and incitement to hatred being published on social media platforms, mm-hmm. and it even fines technology companies up to like 59 million dollars if they don't quickly remove the violating content. And so, what a lot of people, especially women of color, begin to do whenever they are being hit by a lot of these horrible fucking Nazi accounts as they would change their location and it didn't ban everyone from view. You mean they lines, would change it to it Germany? Can. Right. They would change it to Germany or even France because it then would make it so they would, wouldn't have to deal with some of these accounts. It didn't work all of the time, but it worked enough at the time where it was at least partially yep. helpful. So I, and it really is something that we have to be looking at I guess, restricting access to these people in, in some way in order to be able to function online without having to feel as though our every move is being tracked by fascists.
5: Yeah, I mean, listen, I am, first of all, that's a good pro tip right there, because I didn't know that about changing my Twitter settings. Go. And hey, I, I mean, we're winning now, because, you know, <laughs> this is, these, I certainly get targeted with some BS that I don't appreciate uh, on social media or, you know, even in my inbox. Um, and, I'll, you know, the idea of regulating anti-Semitism and hate speech in France and Germany, you know, that's not brand new. I mean, eBay, Amazon, all of the big tech companies, not just the social media companies, no one can use the internet to sell Nazi propaganda Paraphernalia, or to propagate those ideas, and without facing considerable fines in Germany and France, and you know that uh, in, in context, people, you know, in the U.S., I think are kind of understand it because the because World War Two maybe wasn't that long ago, um, or there's like some way in which people can cut in on it, but weirdly, when we're in the U.S. and we have you know, I don't know, black people holding any random object being killed um, by, you know, law enforcement, or we have um, the uh, occupation of indigenous land, whether it's Standing Rock, or, you know, like a whole host of things, real time happening in the US, then all of a sudden, we don't understand this relationship (laughs) between, you know, uh, fascism, and what we see happening in our society. And of course, you know, if we think there's no relationship between what people are doing online and what they do when they get off the internet, and this is one of the things that internet scholars have been talking about for a long time, which is what you do on the internet is in real life. It's Mm -hmm. not somewhere else. (laughs) You know, it's not in a cloud. Um, It's, it's, it's happening in the world. The internet is material. Our engagement with it is real. It's not meaningless. It's not ephemeral. And if we think that the way that people speak online with with hate and vitriol doesn't turn into um, trolling them, which is your, your point, and um, sending hate mail to their house, telling them all about their kids and how they're going to get them and um, stalking and all kinds of things that quite frankly don't happen on the internet are happening at people's houses, at the places where they work, at the places where they worship, then, you know, we're missing it. And this to me again is why uh, we can't just relate to tech companies as um, platforms, as like dumb pipes, you know, as not political or not part of the media landscape. They are absolutely part of the media scape. They're curating content all the time for us. And people are gaming that content and manipulating it. And um and it works in service of real world political action. Um, and and for some people, in the case of Dylan Roof, I think we see one of the more tragic examples of what it meant that his online radicalization was actually more potent and powerful than his experience at his high school. Because I remember after the murder, I remember um, people reporting out that he had black friends Mm, at his high school. mm -hmm. You know, he's being raised in the South. I I mean, he's, he's not being raised like in, um, you know, a white survivalist community in Utah, you know what I'm saying? Or somewhere where there are like no black people anywhere around. I mean, he's in the, in the, in the South, in the deep South. And, and he has a lived experience that then is eclipsed by what he finds online. And that shifts his sense of reality. And in his own words, he says, you know, he developed uh, his racial awareness by going to these right wing sites
7: You ruined social media a little bit for us skeptics today during your talk, mm-hmm. um, Facebook, Twitter, and you talked a little bit about the algorithm, right? It's right. a nebulous idea, but it has so much power. Yeah. So what have you learned about the algorithm and <laughs> what would you advise us skeptics to kind of be wary of when it comes to this almighty algorithm?
8: Well, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I have a message for skeptics specifically as opposed to other people, but the amount of power that the algorithm has in our lives to decide what we're seeing is really stunning and striking, right? So, we've reached a point in time where the majority of what people see, the, of the media they consume, you know, people are watching, as I said in my talk, a billion hours of YouTube a day, mm-hmm. right? People are spending 24 hours a week online. Their decisions of what they watch are not being made by other people, right? It's not like, you know, say what you will about the old days when there were only four networks, right? And, you, and that was your only choice in what you could watch on TV, right? At least there was another person on the other end saying, hey, I think this would be good or bad to watch, right? And, you know, yeah, they were trying to make money and they didn't know it's had your best interest at heart, but at least they were a person. Right. Now it's an algorithm, right, that decides. And it's an algorithm that is just there to optimize your engagement with it, right? Um, it's just, uh, trying to get, you know, it's just trying to addict you and get you to stay as long as possible. So it'll show you anything in order to get you to stay, right? Um, and that, uh, and that means you see some really weird shit, right? Um, Uh, that means the, you know, and not only that, but we are ourselves making content in order to suit the whims of the algorithm. Right. And so we're making content in order to please machines, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's really weird.
7: It is weird. And you know, it's, my kids are seven and five. You brought up the, um, the unpacking like egg opening and package opening videos, um, Keep your kids off of YouTube. So here's the thing. Number one, Daddy Finger. Number two, Baby Shark. Those yeah. have more views than 500 million. I think they have like a billion yeah. views. Yeah. But um, do you have thoughts on the algorithm and a non-human making decisions about what people watch? And children. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the controversy over screen time. Should yeah. we take YouTube away from our kids?
8: Uh, I think that... I don't have a problem with kids being on screens per se. Like, um, you know, I'm not afraid of the screen as opposed. Look, first of all, I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I don't plan to have any. So it's it's a little bit easy for me to say. Fair right? enough, yeah. You know, so I, I don't want to make too many statements about what other people should do. But wh- what are my actual concerns, right? I, I'm not concerned about, oh, these kids are spending all day on their screens. You know, that's that's not that big a deal for me. But it's a question of what they're consuming on the screens, right? Mm-hmm. And YouTube is, this is letting your kids into a slot machine, right? This is letting your kids use a slot machine because, um, these, the algorithm that they're using is, Specifically designed to get you to watch as long as possible, to get you to watch video after video after video. With ads. Yeah, with ads. And it shows you things that and that well, that's why they want you to watch as long mm-hmm. as possible is to go the right. ads. And you know, they show you you wait five seconds and it shows you another video, right? And, uh, another video starts and so you know, you can hit play once, it'll just go forever, right? Oh yeah. And um it'll start showing you weirder and weirder and weirder things. Um but more importantly, it's tuning it to get you to not look away, right? And so it's the videos are sort of tuning to get children to lock in and watch as long as possible, no matter what is on the screen and what what is on the screen ends up being really fucking strange right mm-hmm. and so in terms of like should the kids be on the screens or not well, again, it just depends on what they're watching. If your kid is watching there's a there's a big difference between if your wa- kid is watching uh p b s and if they're watching right. youtube right yeah p b s at least we know. You know, there's, at the at the other end of there, there's a, there's a child educator mm-hmm. who's, you know, had some training, ideally, right? And so that, that that's what I'd say to people. The, but the fact that we're putting children in front of YouTube is going to be one of those things where, in a couple decades, we're going to be like, we can't believe we did oh,
7: that. Oh, right. And, you know, I, I don't judge anyone for giving their kids YouTube, but it got pretty creepy, and we uninstalled it on our kids' devices. Good. And, of course, we don't give them free reign of their devices but yee.
8: yeah, I mean, there's such differences. Look, I mean, I'm a I'm a Nintendo fan, right? I love. So I, is my
7: son? Oh, he's is he? Mar- yeah, he loves Mario. He? he was Mario like three years in a row. for wonderful. Does, it, does he have
8: a Nintendo Switch?
7: Um, he's he's probably going to get one. Okay, soon. so but I won't let him listen to this. Uh, okay, good, good, good. Okay. okay.
8: So what I'd say about that is you need to look at what your media is trying to get you to do, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of games right there are games that where the whole point is to get you to spend more money on the game right and and it it, it yeah. the game makes you want to get to the next level but the only way to get to the next level really is either play it for 100 hours or to spend spend money, spend money right um, Nintendo, at least on the Nintendo Switch, they don't do that. Mm-hmm. Nintendo's model, and it's the old-fashioned way, right? The Wii For seems videos. that way
7: too.
9: The
8: yeah. Wii is the same way. Mm-hmm. You spend forty dollars or sixty dollars to buy the game one time, and then you just have a nice time, mm-hmm. you know. And there's no dark patterns. There's no design that's trying to get you to do something. Yeah. And right?
7: there's no dude making videos and trying to get uh, trying to get your kid to watch. Exactly. I don't know whatever he's doing with exactly.
8: It. And so I would right. actually say, if your kid is like, you know, hey, my kid needs to be on the screen, you mm-hmm. know, like this is, I'm sorry, like we're on a long road trip, mm-hmm. I got to give my kid the screen.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Give him a Nintendo Switch instead of an iPad, okay? Right? So because first
7: thing, Nintendo. I mean, yeah. I, look, I love Nintendo because I <laughs> yeah, grew up with I, it,
8: but but Nintendo is like the the content on the Switch is more wholesome than what's on an iPad, right? Because an iPad has yeah. access to. A lot of dark, weird shit. Right. We have more control
7: over what happens with Nintendo and our children, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. Right? Okay, I could see that.
1: The surge in white supremacy, terrorist attacks, and alleged plots revealed the U.S. package bomber, the U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant arrest, the Pittsburgh synagogue attack, and now the New Zealand mosque attack, all incredibly since October, has prompted a new focus on two things that are missing to prevent future attacks. The social media companies aren't doing everything they could be doing, and the U.S. government Isn't doing everything it could be doing on Fox News Sunday, acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney was like, who us?
10: Not sure what more you want the president to do. You may say you want to give him a national speech to address the nation. That's fine. Maybe we do that. Maybe we don't.
1: So forget about Trump and acting chief of staff Mulvaney getting serious about this. And as for the social media companies, BuzzFeed News is reporting on ways they're cracking down on Islamist extremist groups, but not on Islamophobic ones. So our first guests today are BuzzFeed News reporter Jane Litvinenko, who wrote that article, BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Mack on what Reddit in particular is and isn't doing, and Michael German, who is a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice, their Liberty and National Security Program, and he's a former FBI special agent countering domestic terrorism. Welcome, all three of you. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Jane, can you describe first the extent of anti-Muslim hate speech on social media as your article documents it?
11: Look, it's difficult to describe, even put a number to how much anti-Muslim hate speech lives on Facebook, but what we do know is that it's vast and it's profitable. Uh, Recently, a news outlet called Lead Stories reported on a network of 70 Macedonian websites that have been publishing disinformation purely for financial profit, not politically motivated. And of the top 10 stories that they've spread, eight had the word Muslim in the title. And this is something that we've been seeing for years, that anti-Muslim hate is financially profitable and has been allowed to be on Facebook Pretty much uh, freely, just uh, to-, to spread there uh, without many barriers.
1: You're talking about anti Muslim hate for profit. For profit. Can you talk about some of the mechanics of that? <laughs>
11: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we see repeatedly on Facebook is uh, news articles that are either completely fake or are so partisan they barely have any truth to them, uh, spread on the platform, and get shared fairly widely. The strategy there is if you can stroke outrage and if you can get enough shares, comments, likes, you'll bring some people onto your websites who then view advertisement and make you some money. This isn't the only type of anti-Muslim hate we see on Facebook, but it just shows how it's so prevalent that it is financially profitable.
1: Is this kind of in the same category as what we saw during the 2016 election campaign that was revealed later that there was a lot of anti Hillary material being posted, um, because it was profitable. It wasn't actually politically motivated. It was, you know, kids in Macedonia and things like that, I think is, is what was revealed because they could make money on it. That sold and anti Trump didn't.
11: Yeah that's that's precisely a similar problem so we're seeing uh we're seeing this trend in for-profit disinformation websites for years now uh we saw it during the 2016 election we've seen uh anti-muslim um for-profit articles also 2017 and 2018 and now this is something that's been going on on the platform for years that they have been either unwilling or unable to police
1: and are there other kinds of hate being perpetrated online for profit anti-semitism anti-black anything else
11: Yeah, of course. Um, We definitely see a lot of uh, marginal and at risk communities being targeted. I mean, even the Russian trolls after the 2016 election, it turned out, were targeting communities of color and both stroking hate and trying to speak to them. What we know works on Facebook is outrage. We know that stroking anger against certain groups gets you pretty far in the Facebook sharing environment. And so when we look at the way Facebook is used, that's why a lot of at-risk groups are being targeted by either for-profit websites or trolling campaigns or you name it.
12: In this book, 21 Lessons, you're saying we're now on the verge of a revolution, one that we can't really understand because we haven't been through it yet, but artificial intelligence and biotechnology are converging somehow. What are the implications
13: here? The main implication is that soon it will be possible to hack humans. Uh, The most important fact you need to know about life in the 21st century is that you are and we are uh, hackable animals, uh, which means that an external system can understand me, can understand my feelings, my desires, my choices, even better than I understand myself. Uh, And the implication of that is that an external system can also manipulate me and control me, and in some cases, even replace me.
12: So we basically have no meaning if that's the case. I mean, we all feel terrible if our computer is hacked, but this is us—our <laughs> identity, our being—being being hacked.
13: Uh, yes, there is a—you know—there is a lot of talk these days about hacking computers and smartphones and bank accounts, and everybody's panicking about it. But the real thing is that very soon you could hack human beings. Uh, And, you know, I mean this literally, that you can understand the human code, you can understand how the brain of of a particular person uh, operates, and the political and economic and social implications are immense. We are just now given some foretaste of things to come in things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the fake news epidemic. Uh, You know, fake news have been around since the beginning of history. But the difference this time is that you can tailor particular stories to particular persons. They can show you one story and show a very very different story to your neighbor uh, because they know your unique weaknesses. Uh, When Hitler gave a speech on the radio, he had to uh, address the lowest common denominator of millions of Germans. But today... Uh, demagogues can tell completely different things to, to different people. And as I said, this is just a foretaste. I mean, the way in which trolls and hackers and all kinds of uh, corporations and governments are trying to understand you in order to sell you something, to sell you a product or to sell you a, po- a politician, up till now, it's only based or mainly based on things you do in the outside world. What you buy, what you search for in, on, in in Google search engine, what kind of videos you watch on YouTube, uh, what kind of stories you click on—this is everything—all all that is external, and still it gives so much information about you.
12: Can you give an example, a very personal example? When have you actually felt as though you've been hacked?
13: Well, <laughs> um, let, let me think about it for 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 a moment. It happens all the time, you know, for example, with Google, that we go to some restaurant, me, me and my, my husband, he's the one carrying the smartphone in, in the family. I don't have <laughs> a smartphone, but we go to a restaurant, In it happened in Tokyo, we went to this restaurant in Tokyo, and five minutes after we left, we got a message, please rate this restaurant. And it was this tiny hole underground in some, in some uh, high rise in, in Tokyo. And we never told anybody and we didn't never told Google that we went to this restaurant. But you know, five minutes later, we had this request. Uh, please rank this restaurant. I've and had similar they,
12: uh, requests and they come back at me the next week and the week after and the week after the persistence of that sort of observation in the, in the followed is tremendous.
13: Yeah, but we didn't look for the restaurant on Google Maps or anything. We just went there. And probably I, I'm not sure how it happens, but probably uh with the GPS in, in in the smartphone, they can tell that you are in this particular restaurant. And you know, this is not very sinister. I mean, it's not being done as far as I know for any bad reason, but the implications are are, are tremendous. That's actually not the only
12: thing that causes me some disturbance as I read through your vision of, of where we're at and where we're going. And in, in 21 lessons for the 21st century, you actually have this chilling scenario that we're, we're sort of moving in two directions. And there's a almost distinct subspecies of humanity emerging. One, the very, very, very wealthy. They can buy anything, Uh, you know, intelligence, Mm -hmm. they can buy health. Um, They're in control of everything, including the rest of us who are sort of redundant, useless, ignorable. We're we're, we're almost not even on the planet. What's the evidence you see of that happening?
13: Well, first of all, it's just a possibility. It's not an, an, an inevitable prophecy. Nobody knows how the world will actually look like in 2050 or 2100. Uh, As a historian, I don't try to predict the future. I just try to map different possibilities and to highlight the most dangerous possibilities in the hope that uh, we will prevent it from happening. Now, what you see today in the world, uh, maybe at two very important processes, is first of all that uh, more and more people are facing not exploitation, but irrelevance. In the 20th century, the big struggle of the masses was against exploitation. They were struggling against these small elite that exploited them. But to be exploited at least means that they need you. Now, it's a very different story. More and more people find that they are struggling against irrelevance, against elites that don't exploit you. They just don't need you. And this is far more scary because, first of all, it means that you're really powerless and meaningless. They don't need you for anything. And secondly, that it's going to be a much more difficult struggle. So, And and we are already beginning to see it. Whereas in the 20th century, you had these big uh, socialist revolutions of the exploited masses rebelling against their exploiters, their oppressors. You can, you, at least one interpretation of the populist rebellions of the last few years in the United States, in, uh, in, in, in Britain, now in Italy, is that at least some of the people, they are rebelling against irrelevance. They are feeling that the future is passing them by that they are being left behind by the enormous advances of artificial intelligence and bioengineering and globalization and blockchain and all these uh, great words, which they hardly understand what they actually mean, but they do understand that it's not about them. They are being left behind. If you lived, let's say, in the 1930s, so in many places around the world... Life was much, much harder than today. But at least everybody told you, even the communists and the Nazis, everybody told the common people that they are the future. You looked at the posters on on the wall, and usually the posters showed these steelworkers and farmers in heroic poses. And the message was that the ordinary human being is the most important thing in the world. And now, more and more people feel that the future doesn't need them. So this is one process which we are already beginning to see around us. The other process is a major shift in the, uh, in, in, in the meaning of power in the world. In ancient times, land was the most important asset and politics was a struggle to control land. Then, in the modern age, machinery became more important than land, and politics became the struggle to control the machines. Who owns the machinery, the factories, the the mines, and so forth? Now, already today, data is replacing machines as the most important asset in the world, and politics becomes the struggle to control the data. And if too much of the data is concentrated in the hands of too few people, whether you call them a corporation or a government or whatever, it doesn't matter. If they control the data, if, if they have the monopoly over the data, they control not just all of us, they control the future of the world and the future of life.
12: But it, it sounds completely futile. I mean, it, it sounds as though not only do we not have control, that we sort of didn't know we didn't have control. I mean, we're, we're, we're in this completely vacuum situation surrounded with, by nothing, no hope, certainly no politics. I mean, you know, in the 20th century, there were, there were like three options. You had communism Mm -hmm. or you had liberalism and you had fascism. And we all thought we knew which choice to take. Now those are, completely irrelevant, as
13: are we. Uh, No, I don't think that we are already irrelevant, and I don't think we need to give up hope already. Um, these are uh, processes, historical developments, but we can still do something about it. The debate has hardly b- even began. I mean, so far, most people have not even realized that data is now the most important asset in the world. So they are willing to give all their personal data for free or, or maybe in exchange for email services and funny cat videos, yeah. and they vote in elections. And they don't ask, what is your policy about uh, data privacy? What is your policy about artificial intelligence? If you looked at the 2016 elections in the US, so the only reference to these technologies were the, was the email scandal of Hillary Clinton. But what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats in the, in the US in their attitude to AI and to data privacy? Nobody talks about it. Uh, we can start to have a conversation now. It's not too late. And we can start formulating uh, different policies, even different ideologies. How do we want to manage these enormous opportunities and and enormous dangers? I mean, it should also be remembered that it's not all bad. I, I tend to focus on the dangers, but of course it should be said that there are enormous promises In the new technologies, I can give a few examples uh, uh, if you want, but but the key thing is not to give up hope. Oh, it's hopeless. We are all doomed. But to realize there is still time, not a lot of time, but there is still time. And if we now start a, a new political debate realizing that the biggest questions we face are not immigration and not terrorism and not trade agreements. The biggest questions are what to do with artificial intelligence and big data algorithms and bioengineering. There is still time to prevent the worst outcomes and to harness uh, these uh, new technologies to do a a lot of good things.
10: If the problem is proliferation and memification and glorification, doesn't the larger responsibility fall on the social networks, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube? Facebook took down a million and a half posts of the original massacre live stream, which is an astounding intervention. But ultimately, just a drop in the bucket, this is not a rhetorical question. It's a question.
9: Yeah. So when we talk about amplification, we do have to understand that the distribution of content online, be it journalist articles or user-generated content, is different from the ways in which the press has acted as a gatekeeper in the past. But I will say that the press still holds significant authority within the minds of the public as the first draft of history. And these are the documents that are going to survive this moment in Internet history. So, for instance, algorithms are not stable. So in a week from now, we're going to see changes to what shows up on the first page of Google. In a month from now, we're going to see even more radical changes in terms of what happens when you search for Christchurch. So it's important that we do journalism today so that other social scientists and historians have a record of what happened. But amplification is a passing problem. It's a problem of now. And I should say that this was a choice that Facebook made to take this content down. One of the things that we've noted in the content moderation policies of Twitter, for instance, is that they don't take down – certain posts that they consider newsworthy, even if they are breaking their terms of service around harassment or hate speech or incitement to violence. And so we have to recognize that the platform companies are making a choice, but they haven't really developed a code of ethics or a set of principles about amplification that I think now that this event has happened that they will have to do in the future.
10: On this show, we've often reported about the conflict of interest that faces the platforms. They literally profit in dollars and cents from the interests of malicious actors and just the morbid curiosity and impulses of billions of users. Now, in the aftermath of something like Christchurch, it's, of course, easy and important to ask tough questions of the press— and to demand accountability from the platforms, but in some ways, does not the fault lie within users, within us?
9: One of the things that the research that I did at Data & Society is really focused on is the way in which the profit incentives on platforms misalign with society or user interest. That is to say, That if I post more and more extreme content, if I use my live stream to do something horrific in order to call attention to something, I'm really incentivized by that platform's business model to do so. We cannot know what the intent of many of the 1.5 million uploads on Facebook were, but these aren't just people that support this ideology, some of these are looking to upload the content for clickbait. We can know that some of them were profit-driven.
10: I guess what I was getting at is that, like you, I am also extremely suspicious of the 1.5 million uploads of that video, and I suspect the worst. But uh, to tell you the truth, I'm much more concerned with the whatever it is about human nature that makes this ecosystem survive.
9: In 2015 when I turned to studying hate movements online, I was really horrified to see the amount of places that you could go to if you were interested in white supremacy or white nationalism. And I can't say though that that felt all that different from the communities that I was exposed to as a young punk rocker in Boston where there were a lot of skinheads who were doing active recruitment at different clubs. And and I've I've seen people fall into those traps of trying to make meaning out of their lives by hating others. And unfortunately, you know, the internet can do many things for many people. But we've also reached a scale now where we're not talking about small subcultures online. We're not talking about interest groups online. What really scares me about the ways in which these communities foment their rage online is the degree to which they're becoming internationally networked. But in a strange way, I'm hopeful that the good nature of others will be able to overcome this as we face and expose this undercurrent online.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Brian Lehrer Show, introducing the idea of algorithms that are geared to keep your attention at all costs. Delete your account. Discuss the tension between free speech and hate speech in an age of lightning-fast propaganda. Point of Inquiry spoke with Adam Conover about the algorithms behind the screens children are looking at. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the profitability of hate on social media. Ideas from the CBC talked with Yuval Noah Harari about the algorithms capable of hacking humans. And finally, we just heard On the Media discussing the role of the media, the platforms, and the public during events like the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand. If you have thoughts that you would like to join in with, I absolutely welcome them. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is gonna be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.